You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's reading is from portions of Isaiah chapters 30, 31, and 32. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect it and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast aside his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. 
Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Good? Well, uh, my name is Trent Sensky, and I am a pastoral assistant to Pastor Bob. And so with them being on rest and retreat this week, the pastors, I get the privilege of serving them and serving you by preaching God's word. I have a confession to make. I'm not going to tell you anything new. In fact, I'm going to tell you the same things. The same things that you've heard and the same things that you will hear again. But isn't this the brilliance of Isaiah? Isn't this the the amazing thing about God's word? That the message is consistent, the same things over and over and over again. Yet the way in which they're communicated, it always seems to be a little bit different. So this morning will be the same. You'll hear some similar things, but it's going to sound different. Last week, or a couple weeks ago, Pastor Bob preached on the theme of trust and obedience. And what Isaiah is doing is he's taking the material that he wrote from those chapters, and he's going to now apply them to a particular situation that his people are in. So what I want to do is start our time by looking at a couple of the questions that Pastor Bob asked us a few weeks ago. So he asked, what threatens your sense of peace? Or where do you turn for safety, comfort, and rest? Which is really to say, how do you deal with a lack of peace? I was thinking this week, and peace is not really part of my normal vocabulary. I mean, I might say peace, like see you later, but I don't, I don't talk about peace or that I feel peace that often. And so it was troubling to me because I think this whole section is helping us see that all we do is seek peace. But we might not say, yeah, I'm seeking peace in this particular situation or that relationship or this endeavor. But what I think we do, we could say is, I'm seeking security or a sense of stability in this, wanting a sure foundation to be established. Or it's more likely we would be seeking wholeness. We want balance in our lives. We want whole lives. Or maybe it's um, that you're seeking satisfaction. There's something in us that drives for joy, fulfillment, to be satisfied. 
a lot of the things that we do are aimed at those ends. And so what we're actually seeking fits what the Bible calls peace. The word in the Old Testament in the Hebrew is shalom. And it's this expansive, fluid term that really encapsulates all of those things that we are longing for. It's, it means safety and prosperity, the sense of intactness or wholeness. It means satisfaction and well-being. A sense of flourishing is what peace is. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about what we all long for. And maybe it was actually better put what we all, where we all want to live. We're longing for a life and we're longing for a city in which peace dwells. We're longing for a place which has no violence, there's no death, there's no pain, sickness, there's no tears. We're longing for a place in which relational stability is present, a place in which financial security exists, where we have enough. We're longing for flourishing. That's what we want out of life. We want that kind of life. And the truth is, if you're a Christian here this morning, that's what you want. That's what you long for. But isn't it also true that if you don't believe in Jesus and you are maybe skeptical of the claims of Christianity, that you're still driven for peace as well. The reality is that peace is hardwired into us. There's something in our very fabric, in our nature, that longs for peace. And what the Bible would say is that we've been created, we've been made in the image of God, and God is a God of peace. God is a God of peace, and so there's something in us that longs to achieve and to have peace in life, and we'll do many different things in order to get it. So, if we're going to talk about peace this morning, we need to ask a few questions. Because if we long for peace, we probably should ask the question, why do we so often lack it? Why do we lack peace? And then what we're going to do then is consider, well, how does peace actually work? How does it function? And then finally, what we're going to see is the way to get peace. That's where we're going this morning. If you have a Bible with you, open up to Isaiah chapter 31. Um, Sarah read a couple of pieces from these chapters. Three chapters is a lot to cover, so what we're going to do is use chapter 31 as our home base, our starting point for the morning. What you see in these three chapters is that um, Isaiah is talking to God's people in a particular moment in history, and he's talking to Egypt, and he's talking to Assyria, and he's talking to the people of Judah. And he does that in multiple cycles, but chapter 31 is where we're going to see it most clearly laid out. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord, and yet he is wise and he brings disaster on them. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will perish together. So the prophet Isaiah is going to answer the questions of his people about peace in two ways. 
He's going to say, the reason that we lack peace is because instead of looking to God, we look to Egypt. And instead of looking to God, we look at Assyria. So let's look at the first one. Why would it be so bad to go down to Egypt for help? I mean, after all, the Assyrian army, the empire of the king of Assyria is marching towards them. These people were like the Nazis of the ancient Near East. They were cruel, vicious people who gloried in violent conquest. Think of it like this. Imagine just for a minute that somehow the Nazis had invaded the U.S. and they had taken Wisconsin and they took Iowa, sorry Council Bluffs, and they're waiting encamped in Council Bluffs to cross the Missouri to come get us. This is what the people in Isaiah's day were fearing. This is what they were feeling. The enemy is close at hand. The threat is great. So why would you not go to Egypt? Seems kind of reasonable, right? I mean, they're in need of help. They're no match for the Assyrian army. Have God's people ever had dealings with the Egyptians before at this point? Oh yeah, that's right. They were enslaved by the Egyptians, oppressed by Pharaoh for centuries. And then God heard their cries, their groaning, and he with a mighty hand delivered them up out of Egypt from Pharaoh's grasp, brought them through the wilderness, and then set them up in the promised land where they now live. And they've said, well, I guess all of our options are exhausted. Let's go back to our oppressors. Not the best option. Especially not because God had already promised that he would deliver them. Let's read on in chapter 31. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey. I love that Isaiah likens God to a lion. And he, pro- he prowls, growls over his prey. And when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he's not terrified by their shouting. Or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. So he's saying God is like a lion who's not afraid of shepherds, but thinks he's going to eat the shepherds. And the, and the Egyptians and the Assyrians are like the shepherds. God's not afraid. He's the lion. And not only is, the, is he the lion, but he's like hovering birds. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect his Jerusalem. Just think about this. It's like birds circling around something. Prey or their young. Protecting. He will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. This is the promise that God gave. This is what he wanted his people to cling on to. That he would be their deliverer. That he would be their help. The truth is that some helps are just inconsistent with who God is. Going back to Egypt would be like turning the clock of redemption backwards towards slavery. God has promised to help. Pastor Ray Ortland says that we can think of Egypt then as anything that I think I need outside of the promises of God. Anything I think I need outside the promises of God. The people of God, their creed was from Psalm 20, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. They don't seem to be chanting that now. To trust in anything besides the promises of God 
really is going to lead to radical insecurity. If you think about it, there's always someone with more money than you. There's always someone with more power than you. There's always going to be someone with a greater army than the Egyptians. Trusting in flesh, horses, and chariots is foolish. Trusting in spirit, the God who has already delivered his people, that's wisdom right there. Let's look at their response. If you flip back to chapter 30, God had said to them that in returning in rest you shall be saved. And in quietness and trust shall be your strength. But you, Judah, you, Israel, were unwi- unwilling. You said, no, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. And a thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain. Your people will be gone, your armies will be extinguished. All that's left will be the flagpole. God is saying that their distrust and disobedience in his promises will only yield his judgment upon them. There's no peace there. There's no peace in Egypt. Not only do they look to Egypt, but instead of looking to God, God's people look at Assyria. And isn't this true of us? Let's read 31 verses 8 and 9. God says of the Assyrian, their great fear, and the Assyrian shall fall by the sword. Not of man, a sword not of man shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock, which is a king of Assyria, shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem." Isaiah's language here is so important to catch because the people of God were afraid of the mighty army of the sword of Assyria. But what's he say? The sword of the Lord will strike them down. And they were afraid of the threat of the king of Assyria. And isn't this the way way that fear works? Fear, when it starts out in you, is just kind of the seed that works its way into your heart. And then pretty soon it starts to grow and grow to the point that it's consuming you. All of your thoughts, your emotions, even your, phys- your body physically can feel fear. And what God is saying is, don't be afraid of Assyria. They're no threat. They won't consume you. Matter of fact, I am the consuming fire and I will consume them in due time. Instead of looking to God, we look at Assyria, we fixate on our fears rather than trusting in the promises of God. So why do we lack peace? The reason we lack peace is we don't look to God. God is not silent in our everyday lives. He's not. And what we do is we have a tendency of believing that God exists. Of course he exists. But We don't look to him moment by moment. We don't need him every hour, as we sang. We hear his word to us, trust and obey, trust and obey. It's like the babbling of a little child, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, I heard that before. I tried that once. I can't trust you right now. 
I've got to do this instead. There are many objections to not trusting in God's promises and obeying his words, but I think most of them come down to something that feels a lot like this. God, you don't understand my situation. Gospel community leader, you don't know what I'm going through. You can't see what's happening. I'm pressed in on all sides. There's no way out of this. I'm different, and this situation is different. I just, you just don't understand. Well, the, the answer to our objections is really quite simple. Pastor Ray Ortland, when he was here in February, used a phrase that has quickly become one of my favorite phrases. He actually used this passage to speak to us. And he says that the question, the most important question that is always before us is the reality of God. Is God really real? The reality of God. See, it's easy for us to say, Yes, I believe that God exists, but when stress comes and pressure happens, God seems to us more like a theory than a reality. A good theory, of course, but he's not present and real. But the the problem with that is we don't have theoretical problems. We have very real problems, very pressing problems, and we don't need a theoretical savior. We need a real savior, a present savior. Whatever Assyria is breathing down your neck last week or this coming week, the real question, the most urgent crisis, is whether or not you'll believe the promises of God. Our most urgent need is not a new way of relieving stress, but it is a good, healthy sense of the reality of God. Pastor Steve Timmis, when he was here, He said the same things, too, the same things, over and over, but in a different way. When he summed up the whole of the biblical narrative as God saying one thing to us, trust me, trust me. So this is why we lack peace. We don't look to God. We believe he exists, but we don't look to him in the moment of our distress, Instead of looking to him, we look to Egypt, we look at Assyria, but that's always going to end in a lack of peace, because there's no peace in Egypt. Let's look now then at how peace works. If we know why we don't have peace, how does it actually function? How does it work? Peace is the result of trust and obedience. A few weeks ago, Pastor Bob posed the question, What does God want from you? And everyone, to some degree or another, tries to answer that question. What does God really want? And the answer that Isaiah and that Pastor Bob gave is trust and obedience. Here Isaiah is applying that truth. Trust and obedience was the principle, and the application was this conflict, this crisis with Assyria. So let's think on how peace works. He laid out the princi- Isaiah laid out the principle in chapter 26. Here's what he said. He said, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. The Lord is a, the, trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. 
Here's the principle. You want to see the application? Flip to verse 17 in chapter 32. This is the different language that I'm talking about. In 17, he says, the effect of righteousness, which would be trust and obedience, will be peace. And the result of righteousness will be quietness and trust forever. Peace is the result of trust and obedience. This is your life. This is your day to day. I don't know if you knew this, but all of the time you are functioning under trust and obedience in your pursuit of peace or security or satisfaction. Trust and obedience is the way you seek peace. So I know that everyone in here is a better driver than everyone else. So it's okay for us to talk a little bit about driving. Driving is an exercise in trust and obedience, is it not? Right? The reason you keep the traffic laws is because you trust that as you obey them, the roads will be a more peaceful place to drive. They will be more secure, more safe. As a matter of fact, to the degree that everyone trusts in those laws, everyone will drive more safely. But say that you don't trust fully the traffic laws, you're going to then speed, or maybe you'll roll through that stop sign, or maybe you'll text while driving, or maybe you'll be that guy who never, ever, ever uses a turn signal. <laughs> there is that guy. He's probably here. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Peace is the result of trust and obedience. In the degree that we trust and obey the traffic laws, we will have peace. This is the way that food works as well. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Cereal, bread, toast, yogurt. Did you check the expiration date? Somebody stamped that expiration date on there because, I don't know who, I don't know how they figure it out, but if you follow the guidelines of the expiration date, right, if you trust it and you obey it and comply with it, you will hopefully not have an upset stomach because you've eaten something that's spoiled. That's the way this works. Now, say, for example, that you're really hungry, right? You're really hungry, and what you'd really desire, what would really bring you peace and satisfaction is food in your stomach. You're going to neglect the expiration date and continue to eat, taking the risk that it might make you sick because you need to satisfy the desires of your stomach, and you'll trust and obey them. Same principle, different outcome. This is the way dieting works, isn't it? Anybody on a diet, on a workout plan? You're trusting this plan, adhering to its rules and guidelines, so that the outcome will be a more peaceful, healthy existence for you. Every day, this is how you live. Trust and obedience results in peace. I think probably the most significant area that we struggle to have peace is in making decisions. Is it not? Making decisions is a hard thing. Whether it's a new job to take, whether it's education to pursue, whether it's moving to a new part of the city or a new city, whether it's starting a family, buying a house, buying a car, whatever the major decisions that you have to make in life, don't we often feel a lack of peace in them? See, the reason that we lack peace is we fail to trust and obey God. 
decisions get derailed from peace in a couple of ways. The first way is that we don't obey God. God's maybe made it clear to you what the decision is. It's a right or wrong decision, a moral one. And so you not, not obeying God means that you refrain from doing that and therefore feel the sense of off or lack of peace because you know what you should do, but you aren't willing to do it. And so you're either not going to um, break up with that guy or you're not going to fire that employee that needs to be fired, or you're not going to um, break with that sin habit. Decision-making is hard because sometimes we just don't obey God and therefore feel a lack of peace about making the decision. The other reason is that we don't trust. This is what I experienced, if you ask my wife, when we decided to move to Omaha. It was this couple months season where we were praying and seeking the Lord, and I was just a mess. Like, I had absolutely no peace about me. I didn't know what to do. And I demanded that God act and give me a perfect clarity about what I should do and what was the next step for our lives. Anybody been there? And you know what? It wasn't a moral decision. There wasn't a right and wrong. And what God had asked me to do was to trust him Step forward in faith that he is sovereign, he is good, and that he's promised to be with me always. Some of us lack peace in decisions because we won't trust God and move forward with them. But we're demanding to know all things. Peace is the result of trust and obedience. And in case we missed it, this is discipleship too. Now, our elders retreated in December and prayed about what we need as a church this year. And they sensed that what we needed to grow in was discipleship, how to make disciples. Maybe that's your question. How do I I actually make disciples? How do I do that? Well, I want to submit to you that the reason making disciples and discipleship might be so hard for us is that it's too simple. God said, trust me, obey me. And we say, yeah, 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 but tell me how. Tell me, tell me how to help someone grow as a disciple. Tell me what I need to do. Give me the method. Give me this or that. Making disciples is as simple as helping someone else trust and obey God. That's it. The guy who discipled me all throughout college knew this really well. And so when life would happen and crisis would come and concerns and questions that I had and I was freaking out about something, we would talk about it, we would, we would, I would, he would ask me what was going on and every time he would take me to the promises of God and he would say, God is real. Trust him. Obey him. That's discipleship. So, Peace is the result of trust and obedience. And doesn't this fit your experience? You may doubt Christ or you may doubt the scriptures, but you function under trust and obedience to bring you peace all the time. But let me ask you, how's it working? Is your trust and obedience yielding peace? Is your trust and obedience bringing about peace? peace. Or maybe we've turned again and gone down to Egypt. There's no peace in Egypt. 
Many of us have been working and working and working at this principle of trust and obedience, longing for peace in Egypt, not realizing that it can never be found there. The reason that you'll never experience peace by working and working to get it is because you weren't meant to create peace, you were meant to receive it. So we've seen why we lack peace, because we don't look to God, and we've seen what, how peace works because it's the result of trust and obedience, but how do we get peace? The only way to get peace is by receiving it. The only way to get peace is by being caught up with something more powerful, more gracious, more faithful, more glorious than Egypt or anything else like Egypt. The only way is if our affections at a heart level are gripped by something greater and pulled away from Egypt, pulled away from Assyria. This is why the central command in this whole section of three chapters, the only command actually, is in verse 6 of chapter 31. Turn to him. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. But we're stubborn children. We're children who won't be taught. But the day will come. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, from which your hands have sinfully made for you. There will come a day, a day so glorious, a day where we sense and experience and trust so deeply in the the truth that God is more glorious and more powerful that we say to the idols, we say to the places of false refuge that we've gone, ah, be gone. Why did I trust in you? Why did I look to you? That's what Isaiah is saying will happen. And then he goes on to describe it. Turn to chapter 32. He says, In that day, behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, and like the, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. Remember this language from a few chapters ago. God is going to bring about renewal of his people. He's going to make their hearts actually respond in trust and obedience to him. He goes on saying, Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the palace is forsaken and the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys and a pasture of flocks. What Isaiah is saying is that now judgment will come upon the people of Judah. Now the palace will be forsaken because you have turned and gone down to Egypt. You have distrusted in my word and my promises. But there will come a day. There's coming a day in the future when a king will reign in righteousness rather than kings reigning in wickedness. That a day when his people, God's people, will hear rather than have their ears closed. They'll see rather than be blind. And that day, in that day, the Spirit will be poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and a fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness 
and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And here it is. The effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Isaiah opens his prophetic window and shows us a day for his people that will come. A day when there is going to be a king who reigns in righteousness, whose power is immeasurable, whose greatness and glory far surpass that of Egypt. But the truth for us is that this day has come. This day has come because there is a king that reigns in righteousness. There is a king whose greatness is immeasurable. There is a king whose glory is unsearchable and beautiful. There is a king more compelling and more great and worthy of our trust. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the king that's spoken of here. The effect of righteousness. Christ's righteousness given to you will be peace. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul was driving at in Romans, where he says, therefore, since you have been justified by faith, we have, what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is accomplished through Christ. The only way we get peace is through Christ's trust and obedience. If we try and create peace for ourselves, we will always be empty. The themes of this chapter are interesting, aren't they? You have judgment, salvation, grace, peace, trust, all woven together. And the reality is they only converge and make sense at the cross. This is what's happening. I don't know how to make sense of In 30, verse 16 and 17, where judgment, therefore you shall flee away, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. And what that's met with in the following verse is, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and he exalts himself to show mercy to you. The cross of Christ is the answer to this tension of judgment and salvation, because on the cross, both take place. Judgment is poured out on Christ and salvation is offered to all of his people so that now the Lord can be waiting to be gracious to you. Isaiah unpacks this even further in chapter 53 where he says, Surely he, that is Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Friends, the question that is always before us is the reality of God and of his gospel. It's only in Christ that you have peace. He says to you, he said to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. I'm with you always, to the end of the age. For some of you this morning, you still lack peace. You lack peace because instead of resting in Christ, returning, repenting, and coming to Him, You sit in fear. You're prone to worry. 
You're terrified at what could happen. And so there's a, there's a lack of peace because God is not reality to you, but he's theory to you. And so when God becomes reality to you and when the love of Christ dwells deeply within you, what happens is what John says, that perfect love casts out fear. When the love of Christ is in you, you don't have to fear for the approval of the person you work with or of your boss or of this relationship not going where you want it to or of this happening to a family member or of this happening to a friend. You have, you have no grounds to fear because Christ has united you to himself. You dwell in his love and he is your life, your hope, your joy. He's all you need. Others of you this morning have, again, bought into the self-salvation strategy, going down to Egypt, taking matters into your own hands. Isn't this our tendency? The only thing that will keep us from this working, striving for peace and to receive it is if we moment by moment choose the reality of God he is the everlasting rock. He is the cornerstone, the sure foundation. And guess what? The cross is proof. He's delivered and he will save again. In this circumstance, in this crisis, he promises to be with you. Stay your mind on him. All who look to him, he keeps in perfect peace. We're people in need of peace, aren't we? People around us in our lives, our world in general lacks peace all the time. But peace is only found in Christ. So Quorum Deo, look to him. Rest in him. Return to him this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the simplicity of it. Thank you that its message is consistent, yet the means of its delivery is different. Thank you that you have poured out your spirit upon us, on those who would trust in Christ, such that the Holy Spirit lives within us, working the fruit of peace in our lives. I pray for my friends here this morning who have been looking for peace, striving for peace, but yet still lack it, that they would believe in Christ, maybe for the first time this morning. And for those of us who believe in God and admit to his existence, admit to your existence, Lord, but fail to live moment by moment with the reality of your presence and your power. God, may you awaken us to your reality, to your truth, to your power, to your grace. And may the truth that you wait to be gracious to us draw us to you always in moments of distress or in crisis. And not just in these times, but in every hour. Change us into a people who trust and obey you and as a result experience great peace. It's for Christ's name for his sake that we pray. Amen.